you will, uh, please turn to Luke chapter 7. Continue to go through this wonderful gospel. One, one of the things <clears throat> that we've already begun to see, and it will, <coughs> it will not abate, in fact, it will grow as we move through uh, the gospel of Luke, is uh, his, I won't say focus, but, um, well, I will say focus. Luke focuses on on uh, issues of wealth and, and women uh, more than, than the other gospel writers. <clears throat> and it's uh, the sensitivity that he has about those issues uh, are, are very, very striking. And we're going to see that again today as we look at another section of, of this chapter. But uh, again, let me just say a quick word of prayer. Fathers, we open your word now. I do... Uh, indeed pray that, that your spirit will speak to us from it and we will be touched by it. This is a difficult issue that we're going to discuss today and I pray that uh, you would give us sensitive hearts and inquiring minds, uh, but especially, Father, I pray for the faith uh, that we have, that you would encourage that faith and build that faith so we might be able to take on such issues and uh, flourish underneath what can be burdensome. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've mentioned, uh, beginning in the seventh chapter, there are four different episodes that we see in this chapter, all of them very significant. Jesus is still, uh, I guess you could say, the inaugural portion of his ministry. He's just come from uh, the so-called Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount, as you see it in Matthew. And uh, last week, what we looked at was a startling individual, a Roman centurion, who was blessed uh, with deep, deep, solid faith. In fact, Jesus got to the end of, of that episode with that man and uh, said, I've never seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. So uh, we come to a completely different uh, episode today. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 17. And uh, we're going to see how Jesus responds to uh, the death of a widow's son. So let's read these, these verses. Luke chapter seven, verses 11 to 17 say this. Soon afterward, that is soon after this event uh, in Capernaum with the centurion, uh, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. 
And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. <clears throat> We're going to uh, focus initially on the first two verses, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Nain. I mentioned uh, last time, we're still up in, in Galilee, uh, the area of the dead of the Sea of Galilee and uh, Capernaum is, is up on the uh, just about due north uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee, a little bitty sea lake, uh, about eight miles by four miles. And uh, Nain is about 25 miles away. So he's journeyed south, southwest from Capernaum. He's still up in the Galilee region but he's come to this uh, place uh, called Nain. It's on, the, it's on the edge of the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, Jezreel, uh, of course, is, uh, you, you get, uh, that, that becomes a very important uh, place for many reasons. It's, it's um, where Elijah, uh, when Elijah in the Old Testament is meeting with the prophets of Baal, he too is on the edge of the Valley of Jezreel. It's easy to see on a map, by the way, uh, if you ever see a map of Israel, uh, anything other than a road map at least, uh, if, it, if it shows you general elevation schemes based on color, the Valley of Jezreel is like an arrowhead. Uh, it's incredible. It comes from the coastline uh, where Haifa is and it, and it points right into the Sea of Galilee and it's, it's complete with, with the whole bit of the arrowhead. Uh, very discernible when you're there in Israel. It's uh, it's very verdant uh, place. And Nain is on the edge of this and a great crowd has followed him. Now that's, uh, this is starting to happen and you get uh, sort of mixed feelings out of Jesus. When you read through all of the gospels, Jesus is trying to be a little circumspect and uh, he's not going to heal everybody in these crowds, but you, you simply could not not have a crowd with, with Jesus, the things he's doing. He's healing, he's doing all of these miraculous things, and he's about uh, to do uh, just about as, as much as, as, uh, as God can do in this scenario, uh, which is to raise the dead. So he comes to the city gate. The city gate in these, uh, this environment, in this uh, part of the world, and it really around the globe up until, uh, well, for thousands of years, the city gate uh, is like the marketplace. It's where people gather. It's, it's, uh, oftentimes it's where the business of the metropolis was carried on. In this case, Nain is not a big town, uh, but nonetheless, there are people gathered at the city gate and Jesus is approaching that gate with a crowd and it says they encounter another crowd, a considerable crowd, it says in verse 12, that are coming out of the town. It's a burial procession. And it mentions that this is the only son of a widow. That means two things, at least two things. Uh, being a widow, this is a woman who has already tasted death. This is a woman who has been through this ordeal before. She's lost a husband. And she has only this son, and now this son has died. What that means is that this woman's life is now imperiled because she is a widow and she is now alone and there are no breadwinners uh, with her in her family. So this is a very distraught uh, 
woman who is undergoing quite, quite a bit of, of trauma at this point. Uh, there's a collision that's about to happen. Jesus comes walking. She undoubtedly has not heard of Jesus. Uh, maybe tangentially, somebody perhaps got word that, that uh, they just heard a good, a good talk, a good presentation, a good sermon, whatever they might have described it. Uh, but she's not thinking about that now. She is, she is uh, lost in her grief, understandably. And uh, the collision that's about to happen is a collision between life and death. She's coming out of this, of this town and Jesus is approaching it. Now, what we're running into is the death of a child. I mentioned uh, in my prayer that we were going to look at something difficult. And it's uh, pretty hard to imagine anything worse uh, that we have to deal with than the death of a child. Now, now, obviously, death of anyone is, is difficult to handle. Death is, is not part of the idea of the, of the plan. Death came in, as you remember, back in the garden when Adam and Eve chose to sin rather than remain in, in perfect communion with God. Uh, death is the price we pay. So death is something that, that is the leveler. Uh, the centurion understood all of that, that we looked at him uh, last week. Uh, but here comes uh, another episode, and, and frankly, the Gospels are full of it. The, the letters of Paul are full of it. The scriptures are full of it because God knows very well that each of us needs help with this. These are not easy issues under any circumstance. Um, one of the, the uh, books... Actually, I didn't bring that one. <clears throat> uh, many, many Christians have written over the centuries about dealing with death because it is so difficult, because it is that issue that we cannot avoid. Uh, we may uh, try to avoid talking about it, thinking about it, dealing with it. Today, we keep death as far away from us as we can. We don't even use the word usually. We'll say so-and-so passed or they've, they've gone to heaven as in a non-theological use of that word, uh, not having a clue what we're talking about. We, we have uh, funeral homes that, that uh, you know, keep everything about this out of my sight. I don't want to see it. I don't want to deal with it. I'll deal with it just as briefly as I possibly can. And all of that is completely understandable, but it does not get to the basis of what's going on. Uh, the book that I did not bring, uh, one of the Puritans, a man named John Flavel, uh, every one of the Puritans wrote about death because they had to deal with it so much more than we have uh, in our lives. But Flavel was uh, one of the uh, preeminent uh, Puritans. He lived from 1628 to 1691. He died at the age of 63. He had four wives, not concurrently, <laughs> Uh, he had four wives because three of them died. Uh, so this was commonplace uh, back in that era, but, but uh, Flavel's collected writings are still very obtainable. Uh, they come in six volumes in the Banner of Truth edition. And at the end of the fifth volume is a 65-page treatise that he wrote on this passage that we're looking at today. He calls it, a token for mourners. It's really only from one verse out of this passage. It's from the 13th verse. 
which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, what Flavel does with this, this notion of death, uh, he begins with, if you've ever read any Puritan, you know that one of the most difficult things is trying to follow. They're, they're outlined, but following the outline can be a challenge. And it took me quite a bit of time to try to break this down. But what he does is he begins with four helpful aspects about biblical mourning. What should I do as a Christian when, I, when death comes into my family and I've got to deal with it? And he says, here are four helpful ways uh, to deal with biblical mourning. And then he says, here are seven descriptions of ways that, that mourning the death of someone is no longer biblical. It becomes excessive, uh, excessive and sinful, he says. And the majority of his 65 pages uh, deals with not handling death well. It's why I think this is such an important treatise uh, that this man writes. What he does with the rest of this, he, the two things I mentioned, the proper way to mourn and the improper way to mourn, those take about four pages out of the 65. The rest of the 60, he gives 20 considerations of what he calls them, Things to consider when you, he, in his opinion, you are excessively mourning. You have, you have, your faith is not responding the way it should. When he gives the 20 considerations, he follows that by 12 pleas. P-L-E-A-S. He says, okay, here are, here are 12 responses that I have heard when I tell people these 20 things to consider uh, people will say, yes, but you don't understand. Let me plea with you these 12 ways. And then he, he ends with seven rules. He said, okay, I've heard all the pleas. And he answers those 12 pleas. And then he says, here are seven rules uh, that I would love for every Christian to understand when we have to deal with this very, very difficult topic. Uh, my intent is to type all of these considerations, pleas, and rules and, and give them to anybody in here who wants a copy of it. I think they are, they are magisterial because Flavel was on one end of, of this issue and we are on the other. My suspicion is we probably should balance uh, what we would read in Flavel uh, with what we're dealing with today uh, but the issue that comes through with crystal clarity, not just with John Flavel, with every one of these Puritan writers, uh, these people of great wisdom, what, what you get with Puritans are people with, with great wisdom because they literally every single day of their lives were at risk by remaining Christians. These people are our, our religious heritage uh, they, uh, they're the one, Presbyterianism, of course, was begun in Scotland. Uh, so uh, the things that came out of Great Britain from the Puritans uh, form our religious heritage. And that is why I brought this book, uh, Meet the Puritans. If you want to get a fascinating book, this is a Joel Beakey book. Many of you are familiar with Joel Beakey. Uh, what, what this book simply does is it goes through every one of the major Puritans who ever lived and gives you maybe five to six pages of biography 
So you know who he was, when he lived, who he interacted with, what he accomplished, and then it has a synopsis of everything he ever wrote. This is a this is again, these are this is the foundation from which we come. That this is these these people uh, were were doing these things uh, again in an era when it was not. Uh, most of these people, including Flavel, were thrown in prison for preaching the gospel in England. Now you say that today and you think, well, how in the world could that ever be? England and America, we're all on the same. Well, no, uh, these people were so, um, this man, when you read about in, in just a few pages in this book, this man, uh, in order to meet with his people, and there were hundreds of them, usually he did that in a forest because he couldn't, they, he would have been arrested and, and perhaps killed uh, had he gone to the church where they began meeting. Uh, he, he wound up meeting on an island. A little island is probably too, too grand a word for this. It was, it was submerged at high tide. So the people would wait for the tide to go out. Then they would all gather on this little, uh, this little spit of land out uh, from the coast until the tide came in again. That's how he knew when to stop preaching. Uh, so six hours or so, so don't... Uh, I'm looking, I don't see a coastline near Greenville. But, uh, but at any rate, uh, the point is that these people knew uh, their life was a very serious life. And uh, I want to just read a couple of, of uh, issues that each of these people, very famous people that we've heard, we've heard their names before, who dealt with this. Martin Luther uh, lost a daughter, uh, Magdalene, who, who he writes about very movingly. Uh, John Calvin had one child, a son, lost him in infancy. Philip Melanchthon lost both a son and a daughter. Johann Sebastian Bach had 20 children over two marriages, lost 13 of the 20. John Owen, considered by many the greatest uh, theologian in the history of the English language, first marriage had 11 children, 10 of them died in their youth. Samuel Rutherford, great uh, Scottish theologian, one of the few Scotsmen who attended the Westminster Assembly, uh, first wife and all the children born from that wife died, lost six children from his second marriage. Charles Wesley lost five of his eight children. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress and other wonderful things, lost two children. Robert Dabney, great Southern theologian, lost three sons. George Whitfield, George Mueller, both buried sons. Fanny Crosby, hymn writer, had one child, died in infancy. My point is that back in those days, death was an everyday occurrence. You did not avoid it. You couldn't put it at arm's length like we have done today. We assume today that we're going to live to be 80, 90, whatever. Uh, those are assumptions that are foolishly made. Uh, no one knows when the Lord is going to come. And that is uh, the strength of, of Flavel's uh, position among others. Uh, but these are people that we have heard of. These are people we know. These are our spiritual forefathers uh, and foremothers who went through this and dealt with this as a routine matter of living. They dealt with death. Again, I think my I would probably want to come down 
maybe 90% toward flavel and 10%. Uh, he, he's, he's pretty strident. He doesn't mince words. The Puritans never minced words. And he pushes, like I say, at least 95% of everything in that treatise is of the opinion that most Christians grieve and mourn excessively and sinfully. Where is your faith? I remember uh, my father asking me that question once. Uh, Bobby and I had just been married. And uh, she came down with, we discovered a melanoma and, and it was very deep, very serious. Uh, we were both in our 20s. We didn't know what was going on. We just knew it was very serious. I was traveling uh, in the business uh, world at that point, And I'll never forget that day. It was in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, Bobby called me at the, at the plant I was in at that point, And I tried to go out to the airport, get a ride home. By the time I got home that night, uh, my father picked me up at the airport and I was uh, sort of blubbering. And uh, my father, who was an elder in the First Presbyterian Church there in Macon, he pulled the car over and he, and he asked me that question. He said, where is your faith? Talk to me about your faith. Talk to me about what you're feeling. Talk to me about what's going on and, and let's, uh, let's <coughs> rise to a higher level. And he was right. And, uh, and what Flavel talks about here uh, is, is being careful that we remember many, many things. The 20 considerations he has uh, would include things such as this. Uh, how do you know that God hasn't spared that child from something that would have been so much worse? Uh, how, how could you be so excited when God gave you this child and yet be angry with him when he took the child back to himself? Uh, all of those kinds of, of angles that we're not used to thinking about, but frankly, we need to think about them. We need to be pressured and pushed into an area that we do not want to go. Uh, by the way, this is uh, the other little book I bought. This is, a, this is a, just a fabulous book uh, that every Christian ought to have in case we have either the occasion ourselves to lose a child or we have a friend who does who or who has. It's called From Grief to Glory. This is by a couple, uh, James Bruce and his wife, uh, who lost a son. And what he does uh, in this little book is cover most of those names and the lives of the people and what they wrote about going through that valley of the shadow of death. Again, I, am, I, I regret that, um, that this topic is what it is, but it's not going away and we need to face it and we need to face it frankly better than we usually do. Uh, and, and the Lord is there for us. And that's where we're going to go. Uh, picking up again in Luke, we, we see again, here's a woman who is in the same kind of scenario. Uh, only if anything, she's in a culture that makes it much more dangerous and problematic to have lost her only son and not have her husband with her anymore. So picking up on verse 13, which says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now imagine, put yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of this woman who has just uh, lost the, the most uh, precious commodity uh, she has. And here is someone who perhaps, uh, probably she has uh, not heard of, does not know, but he appears to be no different from all the other people uh, who are in this procession, in this crowd that she meets outside the gate on the way to bury her son. 
And he says, uh, don't weep. Well, this, this procession, which by the way, would have included professional mourners that was and remains an aspect of Middle Eastern culture. It's loud, in other words. Uh, this, uh, this procession that Jesus would have, he would first have encountered the woman who would have been leading the procession followed by the beer, B-I-E-R, carrying her son's body. Uh, those would have been uh, the front of the procession. She is alone in front of the procession, but Jesus. Now this passage in Luke does not have those two words, but you are familiar with all of the times throughout the New Testament, especially in the gospels, where you see those glorious two words, but Jesus meaning something, something is cataclysmic, something that is utterly hopeless has occurred, but no longer because Jesus has entered the scene and entered the picture. That is what is happening here in Nain, a very small uh, town in Galilee. Jesus, of course, knows everything that has happened. Uh, Jesus isn't stumbling upon this procession. He knows what has happened. And it says he had compassion on her. Now, English translations, trying to deal with this word compassion, uh, we really don't have, um, it would be difficult to put this uh, much better than that. Uh, the Greek word that is behind compassion in English Bibles is splotna. Now, any of you, I, I, any of you who are medical uh, personnel, you know uh, where this word comes from, the, the splotnic uh, artery vein system or the veins and system and arteries that supply the abdominal organs, stomach, liver, spleen, large intestine, small intestine, the seat of the emotion. You know how, how we get upset stomachs when we get very, very uh, tense or something is happening and we're extremely nervous. It affects the abdominal portion of the human body. This is where this is coming from. When it says Jesus had compassion, he has moved the seat of emotion, visceral, intensely impacting, passionate, emotive feelings, uh, the bowels, the intestines, uh, all of this stuff. Sometimes in English Bibles, it will simply use the word heart for this. When it uses the word heart, it's talking about the heart as the seat of all of the emotions of a human being. In other words, Jesus is as moved as he can possibly be. Viscerally, he is moved by seeing and encountering this woman who has lost her son. You get, uh, I think, the best illustration of this. If you wish to turn to John chapter 11, you will see this. Uh, very similar situation. Again, the, the John chapter 11 is where Jesus deals with his friend Lazarus, who also has died. And in point of fact, has been buried for a few days. And in John chapter 11, you get this, this uh, in verse 33, again, Jesus sees Mary and Martha weeping. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
That's a little bit more unpacking of this notion when it says Jesus has compassion. It doesn't mean, oh, well, Jesus uh, saw her and felt sorry for her. No, no, don't read it that way. Uh, Jesus is much more deeply moved by the issues in your life, the issues in my life, the issues that Dennis prayed for uh, a while ago. And he says, where have you laid him? Verse 34, they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in the entire Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. Jesus is not weeping because he's sad. He's weeping because he is angry. He's weeping because he is angry over the effects of sin, that sin mandates death. And he is seeing the tentacles that death will spread out in a family. And he is angry over this. That word translated wept there uh, is uh, more properly the, the snorting sound that a horse makes. It's as if Jesus is so moved, uh, so viscerally involved with his friend Lazarus and the sadness of Mary and Martha that he's, he's not even articulating at that point. He's uttering sounds because of the depth that he has moved. And the whole point is found a few verses earlier than that. If you look at John 11, uh, beginning in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, understandably, responds to that by saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now we, we tend to look at that and we, you know, we, we kind of write Martha off there like she doesn't know what's going on. But, but think of the faith she has to make that statement. She is aware of, the, of, the, uh, of this uh, second coming. She's aware of this last day, this resurrection, this final judgment time. She says, yes, I know what you mean. He's going to rise when you come again, when this uh, final judgment takes place. He will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the most poignant question that any of us will ever answer. And that's uh, the approach that uh, Flavel takes and so many of the Puritans. Where is your faith? <clears throat> the approach my father took with me. Uh, where is your faith? Here, here is what has happened. What did you think would happen? Did you think life would be a bed of roses? These, these televangelists that are all into, uh, into uh, everything is supposed to be swimmingly fine with, uh, because a person becomes a Christian. That, that, what a great disservice they are doing uh, to all of us. Uh, God never promises uh, anything remotely associated with that. And of course, death is the one uh, thing that will not ever uh, be avoided. So the same thing is happening here in Luke 7. Uh, Jesus uh, saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Now you and I read that and we know who Jesus is and we even know how this story is going to come out. So we feel uh, pretty fine about that. Uh, I don't know what this, uh, this widow, if she even was able to hear him and take in what he was saying. 
she is at a very, very bad part of her life at this point, and Jesus knows that, and his compassion is what is called out because of it. Now, here's how he responds in verses 14 and 15. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now there's a lot going on here that is very comforting to understand. Jesus comes up and he's, he's told his mother not to weep. He touches the beer. By doing that, he becomes unclean. Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, if you go back into the Old Testament, you know that, that the Pharisees had this, this really, really uh, big deal about touching dead bodies or anything related to dead bodies, even a grave. If you touched it, you were ceremonially unclean. Here is Jesus, a Jew, walking. Uh, remember, the Pharisees are part of this crowd that are following him also. They're trying to look for anything and everything to, to point a finger and say, you see, this man is an imposter. Well, Jesus just gave them some very powerful ammo here. By touching this beer, Jesus has made himself ceremonially uh, unclean. However, by, by what Jesus does here, I mentioned that life and death are colliding in these few short verses and life wins through Jesus Christ. That is the message that, uh, that is being sent to us through Luke. Jesus speaks to the dead man. Now think a minute about what that means. When this man died, his soul left him. When Jesus is, is looking at this body, this dead body on a bier, there's no soul there. Yet Jesus speaks to that body and it responds, it speaks. What that means is Jesus has reunited soul and body just as he will do in the great resurrection, just as he will do what Martha was speaking of saying, I know that Lazarus is going to rise again on that last day. And we know everything in scripture is telling us that we will rise on that last day and have soul and body reunited. And that's exactly what is behind these two little verses. Jesus has put this man back whole. There is a dead body on a bier, and now that body has a soul with it and that body is speaking. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now notice also in that 14th verse, Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. So this is not an infant. That's another thing, by the way, that increases the grief of the widow. Uh, this is not, uh, it would be bad enough if it's an infant, but this apparently is, is a, a son who is old enough for Jesus to look at him and address him as young man. Uh, he, is, he is, in other words, undoubtedly very, very fruitful to this woman. Uh, but he is no longer able to do that because he has died. So it just simply adds uh, to the depth of, of her grief. Uh, so Jesus speaks, the young man responds, and what we see written all over this is not just the compassion, but the power of Jesus. If, if the words pro-life ever meant anything, 
they attach to Jesus Christ. This is, this is our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, he is pro-life and he gives life. And you and I need to be uh, assured of that and aware of it. Uh, finally, uh, the response of the people, verses 16 and 17. Not surprisingly, imagine uh, if you are a part of this uh, entourage that is coming out to a cemetery to bury this young man. Verse 16 says, fear sees them all. However, and indeed because of this fear, we, we read the word fear in a somewhat pejorative sense. We, we assume something is scary, something is, is, um, is fearful, it is, uh, it is threatening in some way. They're glorifying God. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. These, these people in this entourage are acting not too differently from the centurion. You remember the centurion says, look, I'm not worthy for you to come to me and you don't need to anyway, just say the word and all will be healed. And uh, these people have seen this as well. God has visited his people. This is the response. Uh, Dennis alluded earlier to Thomas in that um, just wonderful passage out of John chapter 20. Uh, Thomas, is uh, he gets such a bad rap. That this man isn't doubting. He, he's not, he simply wants to know the truth. And he's, you know, all the disciples have seen Jesus uh, after the resurrection and Thomas is nodding. He says, look, I believe it when I see and I can place my hands in the wounds of Jesus. And, and Jesus affords him. It's one of the most poignant, beautiful passages uh, in all of the New Testament to me. Jesus comes to Thomas, holds out his hands and, and Thomas doesn't even, he just says, my Lord and my God, he knows and the Christian, because we have a new heart to respond, we respond just like uh, these people don't really understand. I'm not saying that all of these people in the entourage are necessarily what we would call Christians, but I wouldn't want to argue against that. Uh, these people are saying God has visited his people. Think about that also. This is, it's been 400 years of silence. When we start reading in the gospels of the New Testament, we're, we're entering a culture the people of God who, were, who have this lineage, this incredible history with Moses and, and David and all, for 400 years has been nothing but silence. But these people say God has visited his people. These people are, are catching on, in other words. And then the, this passage concludes by saying, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Crucifixion, resurrection, compassion, life, death. Uh, all of these things are colliding in, in these uh, seven verses here. And we've, we've got to, to be able to see this more clearly than we do. We've got to be able not to run from it because death to the Christian is not the end of anything. It's simply a portal through, it, through which we walk into the presence of God. Uh, this is not to be feared. This is not to be mourned over. We, we feel like we're obligated uh, to be doleful and, and saddened. Obviously, anytime someone dies and the suffering that so often precludes it, 
we are driven into ourselves for a lot of reasons. Uh, this little book uh, is an incredible, uh, incredible, let me just read. I, I wasn't going to do this because uh, it is, uh, it's very, very forthright. Another man, Benjamin Palmer. Benjamin Palmer was a pastor. He was a, a protege of, uh, of Robert Dabney's. Uh, he and his wife, uh, Palmer lived from 1818 to 1902. Uh, he buried five of his six children. He talks about they first lost an infant son <clears throat> and they buried this son by a stream, a river. 19 years later, they're burying their daughter. And uh, I will just read you <clears throat> what Palmer says. The, the couple that wrote this book, uh, this, this couple wrote this book about 1997, I think, uh, say, I close this book with a promised old story of a father and mother, Benjamin Palmer and his wife, who went to a beautiful cemetery to bury their teenage daughter upon the bank of a stream whose gentle flow murmured a soft and constant dirge over the sleepers by its side. That's the way Palmer described it. This is the same exact place they buried their infant son 19 years before this. It was the very spot where 19 years before they had buried an infant son in the place where they learned a lesson about the resurrection. Here are the words of Palmer. And so the pickaxe and the shovel threw aside the earth, which for many years had pressed upon the bosom of the infant. Only a few bones and the little skull. No, wait a second. And with trembling hand, the father clipped one little curl from which the luster had faded but twining still around the hollow temple, he placed it on the palm of his hand without a word before the eve of the mother, before the eye of the mother. With a smothered cry, she fell upon his neck. It is our boys. I see it as long ago, the soft lock that curled upon his temple. Take it, mother. It is to us the prophecy of the resurrection. The grave has not the power to destroy it concludes with these words. The old tears were wept again, but through them, God made the rainbow to shine. Important lessons about the love that Jesus had. Jesus loves you so much more than you will ever, ever possibly imagine. And he's not ever going to let you go. Let's pray. Father, uh, we've come to, uh, to this topic, and it's always difficult. Father, help us to be discerning. Help us to be uh, those that lean on one another when we are distressed, when we're going through this kind of suffering, when we have to indeed face the greatest challenge of all in this life, which is its death and the passing of a loved one. And yet, Father... We say we have faith. We say we believe the gospel story. And we, Father, know that that story says that that death is not the tragedy of tragedies. That death is simply you calling home one of your saints for reasons we will not know until we too join that saint. 
So Father, help us to mourn, but to mourn biblically. To mourn as David mourned the loss of his infant son when he cried knowing that God was taking that son and then he got up and went about his life more discerning, more humbled, more obedient because resurrection, Father, when life and death meet in the arms of Jesus, life will win for those who love him and the rainbow will shine in the sky. We pray these things in great thankfulness to this great Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.